Our scripture reading this morning comes from Matthew chapter 26, verses 69 through 75, and is found on page 833 in the Pew Bibles. If you do not have a Bible of your own, we hope that you'll take um, the one that is in front of you um, home with you as a gift. Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said, You also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath, I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to, P- said to Peter, Certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. And then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Annalyn, for reading God's Word for us this morning. Um, Good morning. My name is Bill Gorman. I serve here as the campus pastor at the Brookside Campus. Really glad that you're here this morning. Thanks for being with us, and um, especially if you are new to Christ Community or just newer to church, we're really glad that you're with us, and uh, thanks for walking through uh, the doors of this building this morning. I know um, whether you've been a part of church for a long time, you just moved and are trying to find a new church, or maybe you've never been to church, been away for a long time. Um, it's not easy to walk up into a place where you don't really know anyone or how things work, and so hopefully you felt warm, warmly welcomed already this morning, and um, we would love to be a church home for you this morning. Well, as we begin, and we're going to spend some time looking at this passage of Scripture that Annalyn has just read for us, I want to start and ask for God to help us um, to understand Him and to um, have His Spirit be at work in applying this passage of Scripture to each of our unique situations and lives this morning. So let's begin and do that together. Father in heaven, um, we need you, and we need your help if we're going to um, be transformed by this text and not just merely get information or more facts about you, but if we're actually going to be transformed, that has to be work that you're doing. So we ask, um, ask for myself that you would do that, and I ask for each of us here that you would do that in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, in our house, uh, Rachel, my wife, is the one who really loves superhero movies. Uh, Me, not as much. Uh, Usually, if given the choice, um, I'd pretty much pick a Ken Burns documentary every single time. And, uh, you know, I know my wife is clearly a lot cooler than I am. Um, You probably suspected that already. But however, as much as I may protest at times, I do enjoy going, especially uh, to the kind of the summer blockbuster, big action superhero movie uh, from time to time. But here's the question. Can there ever be too many superheroes? And let me just stop before you even have a chance to start to answer that question. The answer is yes. And if you need proof, uh, Avengers Age of Ultron uh, is, is the proof. Uh, if you need more proof, you're not convinced, Exhibit B is Captain America Civil War. Um, I think Spider-Man shows up in the middle of that one. Um, there's too many. I mean, even The Economist, which is known for its superhero movie reviews, 
And that's a joke, right? Yeah, not exactly. Um, they even felt like they needed to weigh in uh, at this point with um, when Age of Ultron came, came out with the article that said this was the headline, Too Many Cooks, the new Avengers film suffers from an excess of heroes. Yes, an excess of heroes. Um, now, while diehard fans may, may disagree, um, the article suggests that some audience members may be reaching sort of a superhero saturation point. Um, you know, and Rachel and I are probably going to have different takes on that, that question. But one thing is clear, that when we read this story, this story that we heard read just a moment ago in Matthew chapter 26, that it is not an excess of heroes that is a problem. It's not an excess of heroes that is a problem. I mean, all the sidekicks, all the friends, all the supporting cast in the story that Matthew is telling are going to either abandon, deny, or betray Jesus. There's no excess of heroes here. And the story has been getting dark, and it's getting darker. But it is passages like this that actually give me solid reason to believe that this is a true story. Let me tell you why. Because we see Peter denying Jesus in this story. Now, if Peter and the other apostles were just making up a movement in which they were going to be the leaders, making up a story about how they betrayed and abandoned sort of the hero of the story, is not the way that you go about building a reputation for yourself as someone worthy of following. Because nobody would make this up. And yet here we have it. Failure denial, betrayal, abandonment. We, we all want to be the heroes of our own story. We want to be successful, or, or at least we don't want to massively fail in our lives. But what Matthew wants us to see this morning in this story is that everyone, and I mean everyone, everyone in this passage, me, you, everyone needs a savior, a hero, a rescuer, and there's only one hero in this story. And there can only be one in yours. We can't be the hero of our own story. Not even Peter can be. And we saw in this passage, we looked at last week, um, that, that not only was Peter one of the 12 disciples, this group of people, this group of men that Jesus had called to follow him and be with him, these 12 closest friends, closest followers, not only was Peter a part of that group, we saw last week that he was part of even a closer group of three who had seen Jesus at his highest points of glory and at the depth of his sorrow and despair as he prepared to go to the cross. No one on earth was closer to Jesus than Peter, James, and John, these three. Even Peter needs a savior he needs a hero, he needs a rescuer, and he needs it badly. So again, there's one thing that this passage makes clear. It's that even those who seemingly have their lives together, who are desperately trying to be good enough, who even seem like maybe they're succeeding in being good enough, they need a Savior. In this story, even the best people need rescuing. Because, you see, the message of Christianity isn't that God helps those who help themselves, or it isn't even just do your best and then, then God will do the rest. 
He'll make up what's lacking. Now, the message of Christianity is that every one of us is in desperate need of a rescue and that we cannot do anything to help ourselves full stop. So this morning, we're going to walk through this story and then make three observations at the end. So walk through the passage, walk through the story, and then make three observations The story begins right where we left off last week. Jesus is approaching the moment of his death. It's coming closer and closer. And a couple of weeks ago, we we watched as Jesus celebrated the Passover meal with his disciples, with these 12 followers in the upper room of this home in Jerusalem. And then they left the house and they're walking up into the hills outside of Jerusalem to the Mount of Olives where they had spent lots of time together over the past three years. And as they're walking, Jesus tells them something. He tells them that they will all fall away. That every single one of them will abandon him. And they can't believe it. They can't believe it. I mean, they can't fathom it. They can't fathom it relationally. Jesus is their best friend. Moreover, he's their rabbi, their teacher. They've given their lives. They left everything to follow this guy for three years. They can't fathom it relationally. They, They also can't fathom it culturally. I mean, we understand in our cultural context how desperately awful betrayal is. But we live in a largely individualistic culture where there is kind of this base level assumption that exists that if push comes to shove, there's a a conflict between my needs, my interests, and the needs of the group, that it's okay, it's understandable, it's what everyone would do, that if those two things come into too sharp a conflict, I'm going to choose my own best interest rather than the interest of the group. But they lived in a cultural context, much more communal, much more collectivist, where betraying the group, betraying your people, betraying your friends, unimaginable. The group is the most important thing. The honor that came with loyalty, the shame that came with disloyalty is something that I don't think most, especially white, modern, Western people can fully grasp. This is unthinkable to them that they would fall away from Jesus. I mean, even today in our cultural context, being cowardly is considered to be one of the worst things that you can be, right? And so in this moment when Jesus says this to the disciples, you are all going to abandon me, you're all going to fall away, they do the only thing they can do when Jesus predicts this. They say, we won't, we can't, we would never. I mean, really, what could they say in that moment, right? Well, Jesus, I guess you're probably right when push comes to shove. Probably just going to choose myself. Look out for number one. No, they, they deny vehemently that they would ever do anything. And Peter is the vo- most vocal of all of them in this. And, and I have no doubt that every single one of them meant it. Their intentions were good. Judas, the one who betrayed Jesus notwithstanding, I believe that every one of them had the very best intentions in that moment. But then the mob came. They came with torches and swords and clubs. They came with force and violence. They seized Jesus. Judas betrays him with a a kiss of greeting and they grab him. There's a struggle, all kinds of commotion. Peter reaches for a sword. He kind of takes a wild hack and he whacks off an ear of one of the members of the group. 
he has this burst of sort of adrenaline and courage, but then it's like he realizes, I've just assaulted a member of the high priest's entourage, and it quickly wanes. You know, it's not unlike the moment when Jesus comes earlier in the Gospels to the disciples on the Sea of Galilee, walking on the water. They're in the boat, and they see the shadowy figure walking. They realize it's Jesus, and, and Peter gets out of the boat, and he starts walking to Jesus on the water. He begins well. He makes a show of courage, a show of faith, even more than just a show, a genuine expression of courage and faith. But then he, he takes his eyes off of Jesus, and he begins to sink. And so here, Peter, initially, he leaves to defend Jesus, not that Jesus needed or asked for defending in this moment. When we really stop to think about it, it's almost comical. Peter sort of defending Jesus with a sword is like, well, it's like a, like a three-year-old trying to defend an M1A1 battle tank with a squirt gun. It's just, it's not necessary. It's, it's, Jesus says, I can have 12 legions of, of, of angels here, Peter. Put the sword away. But fear takes over for Peter. Peter, along with every one of the other disciples, they leave Jesus, they flee, they abandon him, they do the unimaginable, the culturally unforgivable. But it gets worse. Hiding in the shadows, Peter, a few of the other disciples, they kind of hang back and follow the, the mob as they carry Jesus off. Peter follows along and he stands in the courtyard of the high, the house of the high priest who begins sort of a, a joke of a, of a trial that commences. And this religious court, it isn't looking for clarity, it isn't seeking impartiality, it's out for blood. All it wants is enough of a semblance of due process to give them covering for what they've wanted to do for a long time now, and that is to execute Jesus. And Peter watches it all unfold watches Jesus stand silently before the high priest until in Matthew chapter 26, verse 30, or 63, Jesus breaks his silence. This is how Eugene Peterson captures this in the message, which is a paraphrased translation of the Bible. Jesus kept silent. Then the chief priest said, I command you by the authority of the living God to say if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. Jesus was curt. You yourself said it. And that's not all. Soon you will see for yourself the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the Mighty One, arriving on the clouds of heaven. At that, the chief priest lost his temper, ripping his robes, yelling, He blasphemed. Why do we need witnesses to accuse him? You heard him blaspheme. Are you going to stand for such blasphemy? And they all said, Death. That seals his death sentence. And with that, they began to beat him, punch him, spit on him. And Peter, he sees it all. And then someone sees Peter. Watch. You see, if anyone in the story would have been voted most likely to be the hero, if you would have taken a poll of, of all of the disciples, which one of, of these disciples is the most likely in any situation to be the hero it probably would have been Peter. 
I mean, he was the, he was the bold one of the group. He was the willing to, one willing to step up and step out. But it's clear, it, it's all too clear, both for us and for Peter, that there's only one hero in the story. And there can only be one hero in ours. And here's why. First, we see that good intentions aren't good enough. That good intentions aren't good enough. The problem wasn't with Peter's or the other disciples' intentions. So again, we have every reason to think that when the disciples made those bold declarations that they would never leave Jesus, that they would even die with him, that they meant it. That they truly intended to do what they said. But intentions and actions are two very different things. Me intending to get Rachel a birthday present, intending her to take her out for a nice meal on an anniversary, and actually doing those things uh, are, are very different, right? We, we recognize that very quickly. When I have her birthday roll around and I say to her, I intended you to get a present for you this year, but, but I got a little too busy and uh, the date snuck up on me and I, I don't have anything for you today, um, I assure you that I would not be greeted with, oh, that, that's okay, what, what I really appreciate were your intentions. I'm glad you intended to do something. Or, or in the workplace with your boss, if you say, well, I really did intend to get that project done by the deadline. I know we lost the client, but I really intended to. The president say, well, okay, so long as you intended to get it done. That's what matters. No worries. Now, it's true it is true that without an intention, nothing gets done. You have to make an intention. But we need more than just intention, more than just good intention. Philosopher Dallas Willard uh, puts it this way. He explains that if we're going to follow Jesus, if we're going to truly know him, we have to have, he says, first the vision. And we have to form an intention. Intention is an important part of this. And we have to adopt the means. Vision, intention, and means. What he means there is that we need a clear and compelling picture of what it is to be a follower of Jesus, why it's worth it, what he's done for us, who he is. That's the vision. We have to have a clear picture of who Jesus is, what he's called to us to, this life of following him. We have to have clarity about that, a clear vision. And that's so much of what our Sunday morning services here are about. Our singing, the sermon, communion, scripture reading, they're all about helping us capture a, sort of a better vision, renew our vision for who Jesus is and what he's done and who he's called us to be, to help us on these Sunday mornings to make an intention to follow him afresh each week. But without the means, we will end up just like Peter. So what are the means? Well, the means are the spiritual disciplines, the spiritual practices, prayer, regular Bible reading and Bible study, sacrificial service, financial generosity, solitude, all of these things, if you're working with us through this Lenten devotional that we put out not long ago, those, those different spiritual practices that are, we're journeying in through, through Lent, all of those things, those are the Monday through Saturday means of implementing Sunday's vision and intention. Are you training or are you just trying harder? Because it's not those who try hard, those who have good intentions, who run marathons successfully. It's those who train better. 
Good intentions are not enough. Second, we see here in Peter's story that cowardice is one of the surest signs of failure. That cowardice is one of the surest sounds of failure, signs of failure. Where are you and I most likely to deny Jesus? What situations or circumstances will most incline us to say, perhaps with our words, but most likely with our actions, that I do not know the man? Because if you consider yourself a Christian, you, like Peter, probably can't imagine, don't want to imagine a moment when you would deny Jesus. But we all have the capacity to do so. So where are we most inclined Well, it turns out our fears are a good guide, a good diagnostic to help us see those places in our lives where we're most at risk of saying, I do not know the man that I'm at risk of denying. What are you afraid of? Is it losing your reputation? Losing your comfort? Losing your life, experiencing the loss of a loved one, a spouse, a child? It's in the midst of those fears that we are most likely to deny Jesus. But simply being afraid, experiencing the emotion of fear, isn't necessarily sinful. It's what we do with those fears. It's what we do in the moment of experiencing fear. Do we, do we see them for what they are? Do we name them? And then in the power of God, knowing who Jesus is, that he's with us in his spirit, do we move ahead and face those fears in courage? Or do we forget and shrink back in cowardice? See, this is where the virtue of courage is so important. C.S. Lewis explains it this way. He says, courage is not simply one of the virtues but the form of every virtue at the testing point, which means at the point of highest reality. Lewis points out that a chastity or honesty or mercy which yields to danger will be chaste or honest or merciful only on conditions. As Lewis points out, as we'll see next week, Pilate was merciful till it became risky. Remember, Lewis writes, the act of cowardice is all that matters. The emotion of fear in itself is no sin. See, experiencing the emotion of fear is is not a sin. It's what we do with that fear. And when I look at my life, and as I thought through and meditated on this text this week, when I look at my own life, most of my sin, especially in the context of relationships with other people, is in one way or another rooted in cowardice that is fueled by fear. An unwillingness to say the, the hard thing, to confront, to have a difficult conversation. Cowardice that's fueled by fear. Have you recognized what you're deeply afraid of? Have you asked yourself the question, how can I cultivate courage in my life? A third observation and this is our great hope, is that failure never has to be the end of the story. Failure never has to be the end of the story. That is why Jesus came, even for the very best of people, because even the very best cannot escape failure. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus came for failures. 
He came for failures like me. He came for failures like us, people who would deny him, people who would betray him, choosing their own self-preservation, their own comfort and reputation, the path of least resistance instead of clinging to the one who loves them and gave himself up for them. That's why he came. Jesus came for you. He loves you and he longs to forgive you no matter what you've done. And maybe you're here this morning and you're not a Christian and you think to yourself sitting here in this room that I'm, my life is, is too messed up to be a part of a squeaky clean community of happy people like this. I just want to say two things to you if you feel that way this morning. First, this community isn't squeaky clean. It's full of hypocritical sinners in desperate need of rescuing who have come to the good news of the gospel and who are learning to grow in faithfulness to Jesus. I promise you, you'll fit right in. And second, Jesus didn't come for people who are well. He came for people who are sick. Maybe you're a Christian here this morning and you just can't get it out of your head as we've looked at this text and you heard it read that you feel just like Peter, that you've blown it, you've messed up bad, maybe, maybe last year, maybe last week, maybe last night, and you wonder, can I ever come back from this? I'm here at church, but I don't know if Jesus would ever have me back. Did I lose my one opportunity? Am I too far gone? Is there any hope left for me? And if you're in that moment this morning, there are lots of ways to respond. Judas, who betrayed Jesus in his despair, he goes and hangs himself. He doesn't turn back to Jesus. He only runs further away, lost in his despair. Caiaphas, the the high priest, he never even sees his denial for what it is. He he slaps Jesus in the face. He spits on him. He never even recognizes that he's denied his one hope. But Peter, Peter weeps. He weeps bitterly, but he doesn't cave to despair. He doesn't kill himself like Judas. He doesn't harden himself like Caiaphas. He weeps. He grieves. He laments. I mean, the final words that Peter says in the presence of Jesus before Jesus dies on the cross is, I do not know the man. And yet the first, one of the first recorded conversations that we have between Jesus and Peter after Jesus is raised from the dead is Jesus forgiving, restoring, welcoming Peter back. And Peter will go on to lead the church. He will be crucified, and according to tradition, crucified upside down because of his unwavering, unflinching devotion to Jesus. His cowardice is gone. His good intentions have been empowered by the Holy Spirit and the means of grace and the spiritual disciplines. And failure isn't the end of Peter's story, and it doesn't have to be the end of yours either. Betrayal, abandonment, denial. Jesus turns those very things into the salvation of the world. Jesus was denied on the cross so that you would never have to be. Think about that. Live in that. Revel in that, that Jesus was denied so that you never have to be denied. 
On the cross, even God the Father turned his face away from God the Son so that failure never has to be the end of your story. You see, there's only one hero in this story. He is absolutely glorious. The only question is, will he be the hero of your story? Let's pray. Father in heaven, would you help us to have a more and more compelling vision of Jesus and the good life that you've called us to live in him? And would you, by the power of the Holy Spirit, if we're spiritually dead, make us alive. If we are alive, help us always to trust and to love Jesus. We even need to pray by the power of the Holy Spirit for that to happen. So in Jesus' name, by the power of the Spirit, we ask that you would make those things so. Amen.